to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA on the Go. I am entirely thrilled to be hosting Jamie Bernstein today for a back-to-school episode focused on educational advocacy because it is so critical to the CASA Advocates role. Um, And Jamie, you were a driving force behind the creation of the Texas CASA Educational Advocacy Guidebook, which is an amazingly thorough resource available on our website that I highly recommend listeners check out. Um, And I'd love to ask you to share a little bit about your background and work before we dig in. Great. It is such a pleasure and honor to be here. And we work with CASA all the time, as well as our partners at DFPS and TEA and school districts and education service centers throughout the state. So it's definitely been a team effort and it's been a long time collaborative effort. So I started my career in New York City as an attorney for children and dependency and delinquency proceedings. And at the time being in the courtroom, education was very intimidating for me. So it's really a pleasure and an honor to now work at a systemic level to try and provide resources and tools for the field to better understand the issue. Awesome. Well, we are so happy to be able to draw on your expertise and wisdom um, and polish up on our educational advocacy as we gallop into another school year. So um, let's start with the big picture. Can you kind of paint a picture for us about why strong educational advocacy matters? Why is it important that CASA volunteers really become an expert on their child's educational needs and goals? Well, I'll start out with a little bit of a look at the data, because I think it's really important that that informs what we do. So we know in Texas, this is Texas-specific data, 47% of students in foster care attend four or more schools in one school year. Wow. And that's 6.5 times the mobility of other students who aren't in care. We now know that we have even worse outcomes for students in foster care than students who are homeless, military, or migrant. Wow. And those students are losing about four to six months of progress with every single school move. The graduation and dropout rates um, are not what we want them to be, and education is a really key well-being issue, not to mention the fact that it builds resilience for children and youth, it encourages their strength, and in the big picture, it really helps. It's the one equalizer that can break the cycle of poverty. So I think advocates can make a tremendous difference in the education of kids in foster care, and they really provide that knowledge that goes with the child and make sure that their needs are met. Awesome. Wow. That... um... Those are some really powerful statistics. Um, So we know, of course, that every child is unique and that educational advocacy is going to look a little bit different based on your child's needs and their strengths and goals. Um, But can you tell us a little bit about some of the basics of educational advocacy that CASA volunteers should have on our radar for, for all of the kids that we serve? I think you hit it on the head. It has to be individualized, and that's very important. But in general, it's the beginning of the school year, and everybody's excited. There's a renewed energy and emphasis on this issue, but we have to pay attention year-round. You have to educate yourself about the education system, ask questions about the school, how the child is doing, talk to their teachers, talk to the school counselor, make sure that that information is included in court reports, keep this topic on the radar of attorneys, of judges, of caregivers, and make sure that it's a priority. As I mentioned before, on the statistics on school stability, that really is the main driver for a lot of the educational issues that we see. So I think it's critical that CASAs advocate for school stability for youth. And that includes sometimes school moves are necessary, 
but you can help ease that transition. Make school, make sure the schools are communicating with each other, the records are transferred, and that the students have what they need during that critical transition period. And the last thing I'll say is I'm a big advocate for creating a college-going culture for youth in foster care. And that begins as early as, you know, when they start pre-K. We really have to create an expectation that all children and youth can have college and career pathways and that they need to develop those interests from a very early age. Awesome. So, you know, one of the big takeaways I'm hearing from that is how we can facilitate communication between all of those parties who are involved in the child's case and make sure we're, you know, sharing the right information with the right people and and helping empower others to be supporting the kids' educational progress as well. So that's awesome. Um, so I was looking through the absolutely wonderful educational advocacy guidebook that you helped to create. And one thing that stuck out to me is a note about how it's important to interact with school staff just as often when things are going well as when things are going poorly. And I was kind of thinking about that um, because I can see why someone might be tempted to move educational advocacy kind of to the back burner when it seems like everything's on track. Um, could you talk a little bit about why it's really important that we not drop that thread, even when it seems like everything's going fine? Well, I think every child needs attention in school and in all aspects of their life. And and if they are doing well, that's something that should be rewarded and applauded. And it's very important to have regular check-ins that aren't uh, in a crisis, because then if something does happen, you already have a good relationship and a good communication. Mm, that makes sense. I would also say that the CPS regional education specialists have started doing education consortium meetings in their communities. And it's really a good place to talk about big picture issues and to just be kind of plugged in as a community on the relationship between CPS and education. And that's a really good opportunity for volunteers to be part of those discussions. And I would just say to ask the people at the schools, what's the easiest way for them to communicate and identify your points of contact and make sure that you're communicating with them in a way that's easy for them because they are very busy and they have a a lot of children that they have to take care of. So if you can make sure you have good communication with them, that's helpful. Awesome. Yeah, that seems really important. Um, And thinking about building our relationships with our point people um, at the school, I, I was just thinking about how relationship building is really key to pretty much everything that we do as advocates, whether that's building a relationship with the children and the youth that we're appointed to, or our relationships with their parents and their family members um, and their substitute caregivers. Um, and of course, the caseworker and the attorneys and all of our other partners in our pursuit of permanency, safety, and well-being for our children, um, which definitely would include the child's educational team. Um, and I think it's really important to keep in mind always that the educators we're interacting with likely entered the education system because they really care about children. And at the same time, they're likely faced with the, some of the same challenges that our caseworkers are faced with. You know, they have many children under their wings in their classroom and just not enough time in the day. So, Um, any tips for how CASA volunteers can work to build positive relationships with teachers and school counselors and the other folks on the educational team? I think a good place to start is identifying the decision makers for the child. That's something the schools struggle with a lot. They don't know who to communicate with, and they have a lot of concerns about educational rights and privacy and FERPA. And so I think making clear to them who is involved in this child's life and really setting a picture 
of what it means to be a child in care and all the adults that immediately come into their life because the school may not be as familiar with the child welfare system. And so identifying who those decision makers are for yourself and also for the schools, I think is very valuable. Every child in foster care has an education decision maker that makes day-to-day decisions, like can they go on school trips? But there are some children who receive special education services who also have a surrogate parent. And sometimes CASA serve in that role and they make those decisions uh, on behalf of the child at the IEP team meetings, which are how special education decisions are made. So I would say starting with identifying who the major players are is, is a good place to start. Awesome. That's great advice. So communicating clearly about what your role is and who the other folks are that are going to be working with that educational team to make sure everyone's on the same page. Absolutely. Great. Um, so something else that I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about is normalcy, which I think is a term we hear a lot these days in child welfare spaces. Um, and I, I think it can be a little bit elusive for some people to kind of grasp exactly what that's pointing to, because for a lot of us, I think feeling normal in our lives is something that we maybe take for granted. Um, but it may often be more of a struggle to feel a sense of that normalcy for the children and youth that we have um, this great privilege of working with. So can you talk a little bit about whether there are ways in which great educational advocacy can contribute to meeting a child's need for normalcy? Absolutely. You know, I don't think any child in foster care wants to feel stigmatized or pointed out for being in foster care. And I think if the relationships go well in the school setting, that they can feel like they're any other child in the school. And that can be a tremendous benefit to them. That's a place where they feel safe. That's a place where they feel part of a community. And to that end, I think further just advocating for school stability is so important for a child to stay in the same school with the same peers and the same adults in their same community really does feel normal for them. That's that's a source of continuity in their life if they're going through so much upheaval in the home setting and in relationships with their families. And I would also say school is a place where kids get plugged into extracurricular activities. And that's a, a really great way for them to feel normal and develop their strengths, whether it's debate or soccer or whatever it is, chess club, um, that's a, a really good place that you can encourage normalcy. And the last thing I'll say is just school is the center of a lot of social activity in communities. There's pride events and um, other things where sporting events where kids can get plugged in and just feel like they're part of something. And I think that's a really good way to build normalcy. Awesome. Yeah. I'm hearing like, how can we help children feel that they belong and are connected to their peer group and connected to things that really bring joy to them? Um, So that's awesome. Um, And as I'm sure that we can all 100% relate to, um, when we're growing up, school can come with a lot of wonderful friendships, a lot of wonderful experiences like you're kind of describing. Um, And it can also be fraught with all kinds of challenges for all children, Um, but I think in, in particularly challenging ways for our kiddos who are involved in the child welfare system. So Um, I think it makes sense that the more social pressures and anxieties that we can eliminate for a child, the more they'll be able to really focus on other things like, you know, working towards meeting their educational goals and um, feeling comfortable with their peers. Um, Do you have any thoughts on how, as advocates, we can support our kiddos and feeling, I guess, more confident or really help set them up to be more comfortable socially? You know, school is not just about learning ABCs and and learning math. A lot of it's about problem solving and navigating social relationships. And a lot of that does happen in the school setting. 
I guess the way I would frame it is you have to treat a child in foster care the way you would treat any child as they begin a school experience. And what I think is most critical is, is just setting expectations, helping walk them through what the daily calendar looks like, um, when they're going to have recess, what days they're going to have, you know, art and, and math and science and what the schedule is going to look like, how are they going to get their meals. You know, students in foster care are eligible for nutrition benefits at the school, so they could, in some campuses, get breakfast, lunch, and dinner there. Knowing that need will be met can be a tremendous relief for students to not know uh, when their meals are coming. That creates a lot of anxiety. So I would just say helping them be well prepared to walk through the door and um, encouraging them to develop their interests and strengths in the school setting. And if they take an interest in science, making sure that maybe if they plug into a social club and they can interact with other students who are into those same things, that can be uh, relieve some of that anxiety for them. Awesome. Um, some other things that came to mind when I was listening to those ways that we can help support kids is kind of figuring out like, do they have clothes, the clothes that they need, you know, to feel comfortable? Do they have all the supplies that they need to make sure that they're not going to, you know, show up to school feeling outed as, you know, um, someone that doesn't have the basic supplies that everyone else has? So how do we follow up with, with the children and their caregivers to make sure they're connected to any resources they might need to meet those needs for our kiddos. Absolutely. And as I mentioned, you know, schools are the center of a lot of communities. And I think it's critical that CPS and education systems partner together because there's a lot of resources that each system brings to the table and they can work together on behalf of the child to make sure all those needs are met. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so for some of us, maybe especially um, for newer CASA volunteers or for volunteers that haven't parented, maybe don't have as much experience kind of just with children, um, I think it can feel a little intimidating or awkward sometimes to try to have direct conversations with young people about, um, about how they're really doing or how they're feeling, what's on their mind, uh, what's going on with their relationships with their peers, um, and I know sometimes when I was working with volunteers that it seemed like it was a challenge sometimes to like have those direct conversations. Um, but it also seems important that we are checking in with youth themselves about any needs or challenges that they might have. So I just wanted to throw that out there and see if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I think it's critical that children have a voice in all the decisions that impact them, and that includes their education. And I think it's very important to include questions about school in those conversations. And even if you if you don't have kids, you were once a child and you remember what it was like on that first day of school and how you felt to to even if you were a new student and just that some of those feelings that you have and learning your way about the world. And so I think my advice would be to just be specific, because I think sometimes asking broad questions like, how are you? How's school? Um, are a little difficult for a youth to answer. So if you say, you know, what's your favorite part of your day? Or what are you learning in science? What's what's your favorite um, thing about your teacher? Who do you play with in school? So I think the, those more concrete questions might be easier for them to answer. And you might see them start to blossom and open up and, and feel comfortable talking if you can give them an, an easy way to start the conversation. That's so, Those are such great questions. I want to like jot them down and ask my nephews because I totally, what, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I know so often if we, we start with broad questions, children are just like, fine, you know, good. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, great. So another thing connected to educational advocacy that I think can sometimes be a little 
Tricky for some of us is confidentiality, which is obviously very important. But um, I think the question of like, how do we balance, you know, confidentiality with sharing some information, um, basic information with teachers or school counselors or those that are caring for the child at school about, you know, if there's anything that might be particularly triggering or challenging for that child and maybe uh, strategies for how to support them. This is a question that comes up all the time, and it's not in the co- in your guide, but we did a separate guide just on confidentiality that's on the Children's Commission website that I would encourage everybody to look at. I would say as a general rule, information should be shared on a need-to-know basis. And I say that because confidentiality and privacy is so important. Students in foster care, they go through so much in their personal lives that doesn't need to be shared with the world. And I think very often they feel very exposed and stigmatized. So it's important that we we guard that, but that teachers and school staff are equipped with the information that they need to serve youth. I would say if, if you're not sure, confer with the caseworker, confer with the education decision maker, make sure the schools know who those people are. And the example I like to give is you don't need to tell the school what happened with the abuse or neglect, but if there's a trigger that might happen in the school setting, that could be something that could be shared. So like if the lights go off, that could be a trigger. That would be something perhaps appropriate to say, but not what happened to the child when the lights went off in their home. Uh, Activities like family trees, just encouraging schools to be sensitive about how they do their curriculum for students in foster care. And just in general, having a climate of being trauma-informed and and a positive behavioral support network in the school system, just encouraging that to the extent that that the advocates can. Awesome. Those are some really great and specific suggestions. I really appreciate that. Um, So... Every case and every family's situation is going to be different, obviously, but in general, um, what are some ways that we might engage a child's family in our advocacy for their educational well-being? It's a good question. I, th- I think it's important that caregivers and biological family read with children. I can't underscore that enough it, every single day, um, especially the little ones, but I don't think it needs to stop them. The youth can start reading to, to the adults doing homework with them, attending parent-teacher conferences, attending IEP team meetings if the child receives special education services, attending school events. All this with the caveat that it depends on where the parent or the caregiver is in, in the stage of engagement in the court case. And it has to be appropriate, of course, and there has to be permissions for the parent to stay involved. But if we're planning towards reunification, getting engaged in the school experience needs to happen long before that child goes back to their parent. They should be plugged in to everything happening with that child in their academic and social progress, and that includes their school experience. Awesome. Um, Great. And before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask, would you say that educational advocacy applies to littler kids who maybe aren't old enough yet to be enrolled in school, or what would that look like? Absolutely. I think some, some people who work in higher education would tell you that it starts zero to three. And it's in- critical that advocates pay attention that they, to the extent you have time, I know you all are so busy, but learn about different developmental milestones, especially if you have a child zero to three. You should definitely encourage early education, depending on the age of the child, that could be Head Start or Early Head Start or Pre-K that's now been opened up to uh, children in foster care have for a long time been eligible for Pre-K if there's enough kid in the district who qualify, but being in foster care makes them eligible. Um, And that's now full day for four-year-olds and and for some three-year-olds. And uh, also if there's a potential disability to look into uh, ECI. So there are opportunities for early 
childhood intervention and and early education, and that's critical to long-term educational success. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. I feel like I've learned so much um, just in the last 15 minutes, um, and it's really been a blast talking with you. So thank you so much for joining us with Casa on the Go. 